return to Leviticus. And as we return to Leviticus, Leviticus, the framework I've given you is that Leviticus is our worship manual. More than just a book of arcane rituals or outdated prescriptions about blood, fat, food, skin, and fibers. How's that for a list, by the way? Leviticus, the book that's about blood, fat, food, skin, and fibers. Um, Leviticus, as we've talked about, is more than this. It's about what it means to live as the people of God. It's a life-sized, multi-sensory projection of our sin, of our need for reconciliation, and, this is important, of the grace of God's holiness. Leviticus reveals to us how we can live our lives in worship to God, continuously honoring and enjoying his glorious presence. If read carefully with the cross and the resurrection in view, Leviticus at the end of its pages can leave us almost panting, almost panting in expectation and rejoicing in the deeper gospel of Jesus Christ. But Leviticus also challenges our understanding of this gospel. It really challenges our understanding of meaning, the meaning of words like faith, sin, holiness, and atonement. It, it, it pushes us to show us that our faith is more than something positional. It's more than about where we stand with God. Our faith is more than something transactional. It's more than just having a clean bill of health or a clean record in terms of the law. Our faith is relational, involving a God who wants to be near to us, who wants us to be closer to each other. Our faith is transformative, Leviticus says, changing how we see ourselves and how we approach our neighbor as well as how we engage this world in which we live together. We concluded our time last week by hearing the startling revelation that we are not just set apart by God, but that we are set apart for God. In other words, like the Israelites, we are blessed to be a blessing. We are called to be a nation of priests, representing the covenant promise and kingdom power of our God to all whom we encounter. But with chapters 11 through 15, which is where we go this morning, we move into what at first glance seems a little odd and surprising territory. Through Moses... <laughs> the Lord outlines some broad prescriptions for the people related to various matters. The topics include what foods are considered clean, regulations concerning skin diseases, rules dealing with the removal of mildew in your house, cleanliness related to childbirth, rules regarding cleanliness as it relates to various bodily discharges. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't blame you if you've previously skipped or perhaps even skimmed over these chapters. These are the parts of Leviticus that we have a really difficult time relating to. In some ways, if you've read these chapters, five of them, they read more like a hygiene manual than a worship manual. And I, you can imagine my difficulty in picking what scripture I was going to read to you this morning from 11 through 15. I thought about how much I could torture you, um, but instead, I'm doing something a little different. I'm going to highlight on the screen, and you can open up your Bibles to page 75, peppered throughout all of these uh, very descriptive passages, very specific instructions are God again and again echoing, why is he laying all this out? And so we're going to kind of jump around very quickly as our reading through, going back to chapter 10, 10 through 15, to kind of hear the voice of why is God laying this out. So we're starting with uh, chapter 10, and this is God speaking to Aaron when he says, this is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. And then if you were to jump to chapter 11, God goes on to say, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. 
Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. Continuing on to chapter 14. God again speaks with the reasoning behind this. Then the priest is to sacrifice the sin offering and make atonement for the one to be cleansed from their uncleanness. After that, the priest shall slaughter the burnt offering and offer it on the altar together with the grain offering and make atonement for them and they will be clean. And then in chapter 15, you must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place which is among them. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Like I said, these are kind of pointing to what, why is God laying all this out. And it begins back in chapter 10 where the Lord turns to Aaron after that tragic moment when two of his eldest sons fall dead. And he says, it's your responsibility. There's an under, misunderstanding in the community. It's your, your responsibility to teach the people, to help them to understand the difference between that which is clean and unclean. And so now in 11 through 15, God spells it out. And the Lord's rationale, we heard it, about what he's spelling out and why he's doing it, is he says, I'm telling you to listen and to obey because I am holy and because I want you to be holy. And this is part of the means, this is part of the way in which I will make you, I will teach you how to be holy. But the big question for us is what does holiness have to do with cleanliness? What does holiness have to do with cleanliness? And that's kind of what we're getting at is how does that help us to further understand this word holiness? Now, a lot of things are covered in these chapters, and I, if you've never read it before, and I suspect some of you probably haven't, um, I want to give you a quick, what I want to call the 30,000-foot view of these uh, five chapters. And I'm going to tell you, if you ever go back and look, it makes some, for some very interesting reading. Um, the first chapter, chapter 11, the Lord lays out instructions related to one's diet. You might say the overall theme of this chapter is you are what you eat. God designates different animals as appropriate for Israel to consume and those that are taboo. And in the midst of all this, and we can get lost in it, in the midst of the animals, the marine life, the birds, the insects, the, the reptiles, the rodents, we may wonder, what's the basis for separation here? Why is this okay and this isn't okay? And again, there's a lot I could say about each of these chapters, but the 30,000-foot view, what I want to leave you with is just this. One way to think of the distinction between clean and unclean here is this distinction between creatures that are not scavengers. The continual separation between clean and unclean is, is here in, in chapter 11 is this mingling in death versus life. The animals that are separated are scavengers and therefore exist and propagate their species by way of death more than life. And so God is drawing a line in terms of the appropriateness of eating them in mingling in death more than life. Chapter 11 moves to chapter 12. And chapter 12 and 15 are sort of parallel to each other. They relate. They're about body works. Chapters 12 and 15 together uh, offer Israel instructions related to childbirth, to sex, and to hygiene. And what's discussed here tends to make people uncomfortable because these are the kind of topics that we generally consider private and therefore unmentionable in public. Many of us are even embarrassed that this is in our Bible. In our modern vernacular, we look at chapters 12 and 15 and we say, T-M-I. <laughs> Too much information. And yet, here it is. This is the word of the Lord. And, and I think that it's important as much as I know this does put us a little bit, how much is he going to say? Is he going to talk about sex? Because I'm out of here if he's talking about sex. Is he talking about? I'm not. But we should be careful in being uncomfortable to not just have a casual reading of what's here. Because 
if we do that, if we just breeze by this or avoid it altogether or just casually look at what's here, we're liable to come up with some misunderstandings about what God is spelling out here. For example, when, when God talks about childbirth and sex, he's not saying that either one, childbirth or sex, are bad. And that or that they themselves are unclean and therefore bad. And this has been rampant sometimes as interpretations within the church from Leviticus and other places. No. If you read carefully, what's at issue again in chapters 12 and 15 is the same thing as in chapter 11. The focus is on the escape of life through these natural processes where death, if you will, becomes manifest through our bodily discharges. What the Lord's affirming here is that there's an awkwardness in such moments. There's an overwhelming sense of separateness or isolation that come from these moments with our bodies, which is, of course, why we don't like to think about, let alone talk about, these processes. But God brings them out to the community here in Leviticus. God is saying them. He encounters them and speaks to them, saying, this is how the world works. This is how your bodies work. But understand that in these moments, you are engaging in death as much as you are in life, and therefore, you must treat your bodies, treat each other in terms of your bodies, differently in these moments. Isolation is needed, privacy, separation from the rest of the community. And if we can get past how it's described, we still live in that way in terms of many of these things. Now, in chapters 13 and 14, the Lord goes in a, along a similar line but gets a little bit more specific as he, in 13 and 14, God outlines a rather elaborate set of instructions about the skin. And I would say, given our society's obsession with perfect skin, with having a flawless, glowing complexion, perhaps these chapters might be more appealing to us. Except if you read chapters 13 and 14, you'll find no mention of oils or creams, sprays or lasers or waxes or even cosmetics. Leprosy and other skin diseases are the focus. Oh man, you had me and you lost me. Not minor blemishes, not crow's feet and not wrinkles. These chapters are dealing with skin, but again, reading them carefully, even more than this, these chapters describe how disease in general can affect our property. Our very clothes and our very dwellings, the spaces we inhabit can become infected and contagious. And what's outlined here is how to deal with those realities, how to diagnose such infections, how to quarantine such outbreaks so as to contain their spread. And what we may not realize is that what's prescribed here in Leviticus has proven to be medically sound practice. The diagnosis and treatment given by God to the priests in these chapters is not superstitious ritual. It's medically sound practice. It lines up with our understanding of medicine today, both in terms of how such things should be isolated as well as how quarantine should go about. It's actually quite innovative for its time. And yet, beyond that little side note, what's interesting What's being stressed through these chapters, through all these different descriptions of the ways diseases can erupt on your skin and how your clothing and household can become contaminated, what's being continually stressed is the contagious nature of uncleanness. Just a little uncleanness can affect others. Just a little bit of yeast, as the adage goes, can infiltrate the whole batch of dough. Therefore, Leviticus is outlining unclean persons and objects that that are unclean, cannot be ignored or overlooked. They have to be recognized. Persons and objects that are infected cannot remain as they are or where they are. They have to be isolated and treated. And the cleansing rituals that are provided here in 13 through 14 are a way for someone to be made clean. But in, in outlining how someone may be made clean, they're underscoring the seriousness of the disease. 
The seriousness of the disease highlights the gift, the blessing of healing. Now, one of the things that we might just not even think of that's really important here, and it's, it's actually emphasized throughout Leviticus, but especially in these cleansing rituals, is this idea that when you're dealing with infection, the afflicted cannot help or heal themselves. Maybe you've heard Jesus say this once before, the sick need a physician. Someone uninfected who can treat them. The priest, that's the role of the priest, served as an intermediary between the person and God. The role of the priest, the need for a priest, reinforced a very basic but crucial understanding about getting cleaned up. We cannot do it by ourselves. We've fallen and we can't get up by ourselves. We need intervention. We need help. But here in Leviticus, note the priest was not a doctor. The priest only checked whether you had healed up yet. The Lord is the one who did the healing. So that's the quick snapshot of these chapters. So what do we take away from all this? Other than I can't eat lobster? Shrimps off the menu? Other than I have to be more aware of the different things going on in my body that I really don't like to think about, let alone talk about in the first place? Other than I need to keep continually fixating on my skin or my clothes and worrying if I'm spreading some kind of disease? Whenever we engage these chapters as the church, these are the kind of things that we fixate on. What are, we, you know, are we allowed to have lobster? Are we not allowed to have lobster? We get into all these different minutiae things. And instead of these superficial places, I want to push us beyond the details to a broader principle here. And let me just say that, yes, in 11 through 15, all of these instructions involve a matter of hygiene. And yes, there are some very good things in here for Israel in terms of basic sanitation. And that's how oftentimes we just kind of move on. These were given to help Israel in terms of health and hygiene. But beloved, if health and hygiene had been the point of why God spells this out for us in 11 through 15, if that had been the point, then you'd think that once a person was healed up, they could just come back into the community. And yet in Leviticus, as I already said to you, the, the afflicted need to go and, through an elaborate cleansing service. If you are not familiar with these chapters, let me go back to them for a second. Getting back into community once your skin, for example, healed up, once your skin cleared up, required you not only to find a priest, but you also had to get two clean wild birds, some cedar wood, a piece of crimson yarn, hyssop, fresh water, a clay pot, some soap to wash your clothes and body, a razor to shave yourself, three lambs without blemish, six quarts of choice flour, and a cup of olive oil. Did everyone get that? Everyone get that list? And most of these items were used over two successive periods of seven days each. And then on the eighth day, and don't miss the significance of seven days, and then on the eighth day, you finally entered the tent and offered your offering of lamb, flour, and oil, and you were restored to the community. You came back to life. Beloved, what Leviticus wants to draw out is that to be infected was to be the living dead. To exist in a place of living death because you were cut off from everyone else. You were cut off from life. And therefore, when you were affirmed as being clean, when the infection was gone, the cleansing ritual involved much more than a healing service. That's more, it reflected more than a healing service. It reflected a massive, glorious movement from death to life. New birth. Baptism. Resurrection. A new start. Creation, a new creation, as you moved from the realm of impurity outside the camp and were restored to the community and to God. In these details about purity and separation, the Lord is distinguishing the worship of Israel from the worship of other peoples, other nations that surround them. He's separating them from what's called cultic worship. In distinguishing how animals are to be treated and clarifying how we treat our bodies, 
God is setting a clear dividing line from the demonic, self-mutilating, and communally abusive practices of other forms of worship that surround Israel. And the Lord's underlying intent in doing this in the midst of all the details that we get fixated on is simply this, to teach and guide a people how to be holy, how to truly reflect the image of God in and through their lives. Beloved, when God says, be holy as I am holy, God is actually purposing to do that in our lives. And yet many of us, we repeat that scripture, we hear it, but many of us struggle to perceive how we can become holy, how we can be holy as God is holy. And yet it's truly something that our Father doesn't just throw out as a platitude. He truly challenges us to believe and to embrace that we are to be holy. We can be holy, become holy, not just as a faint possibility, but as the ultimate destiny of our lives. That's what we just celebrated for Jackson. That's baptism. Last week, I think part of the struggle of it, to go back last week is that, as I said, holiness is the essence of who God is. When we think about holiness on one level, holiness is the essence of who God is. The Lord is holy, perfect, absolutely and completely good. God doesn't change. God cannot be less than who he is. That's understanding the holiness of God. But when you talk about holiness in terms of us, we've got a little bit of a disconnect because we all know that holiness is not the essence of who we are. We are not perfect. We are not good. We change all the time. We are often less than we are created to be. And you know how you can tell that we're not all that we're created to be, that we're less than we're created to be? Is in our society, culturally, we gravitate, we celebrate, we lift up people who rise above their circumstances. We celebrate such moments. We immortalize people who become more than they're capable of being. We immortalize them through stories. We make movies about them, write books, even songs, because we call these victories of the human spirit. They rally us together. Heroes rise out of such moments. These are the idols that we look to in our world. But here in Leviticus, God isn't interested in such things. It's not to say that they're bad, but God isn't interested in, what, in our limited view. His vision, his aim is much larger, much more significant. God isn't looking for the moments, the victories of the human spirit. God is committed to the immortality of the human soul. More than snapshots of human overachievement, God desires something greater to share eternity with us, not just a moment. And since holiness isn't our essence, since we can be and often are less than we are, because change is often so possible in our lives, God works, God invites us, God purposes to make us holy. And the way it works, according to Leviticus, how do we become holy as God is holy? How do we allow God to do that work in our lives? Is in order to become holy, we have to come clean. We come clean in order to become holy. You see, holiness in Leviticus, according to the Lord, is related to cleanness. Cleanness, not cleanliness. I said cleanliness earlier to see if anyone would pick up on it. But holiness in Leviticus is not about cleanliness. How many of us have heard the adage, cleanliness is next to godliness, right? Leviticus isn't talking about cleanliness. Cleanliness is about diligence and keeping clean. The focus in cleanliness is on superficial or surface level imperfections. Did you wash your hands before dinner? Are you wearing clean underwear? That's cleanliness. God is not interested in cleanliness. 
We might think that that's what God's focus is based on Leviticus, all the regulation and procedures, but then we're missing the deeper point. God isn't interested in cleanliness as much as he's about cleanness. And cleanness focuses on the deeper impurities in our lives, the things below the surface, those hard-to-get-out stains that mark our lives. It's more than just getting clean by washing our hands or taking a shower. That's why baptism, while it involves water, it's not just about the water. There is a deeper spiritual reality. For God, cleanness is about the state of becoming clean, of being clean from the inside out. And that's why later on, when the Israelites don't get this, when literally they become OCD about being cleanliness all the time, what you can't touch, what you can't touch, I mean, they've got rules up the yin-yang, Jesus finally in frustration says, it's not what is on the outside of a man that makes him clean, it's what comes from the inside. You're missing the point. Coming clean with God, beloved, means our motivations, our intents, our orientations are what matter. And the truth is, for too many of us, because of what's going on inside of us, because of what's going on in our hearts, we prefer to deal in externals. We try to fake it in order to make it. But that's not coming clean. That's not living clean, according to Leviticus. Our Father's focus is to make us fit for worship. And that means being fit or healthy for life. God wants us to live well. God wants us to live fully and completely. We've got it backwards. We often judge books by their covers, things by appearances. We think the person who's got it all together on the outside, who has all the things that we value, that must mean everything's great on the inside. But how many stories do we have to hear? How many times do we have to find out that the people who supposedly on the surface have everything that we think we want and we need are not healthy on the inside, are not happy? are not living a full and complete life. God is spelling that out without individual people, just in general. It's about what's inside that manifests the things that come out. God's desire, his intention for us is to come clean. What he outlines here isn't just so that we can look nice in his presence or superficially clean up our acts for others. God wants us to live clean, to truly exist, not just to survive, not just to conquer and to make it. God wants us to thrive. All of our lives, every day of our lives, not when we finally grab the brass ring or get the bigger house or have the, the, the whatever it is that we think will finally make us arrive. God wants us to have that every moment. And that's why God our Father literally gets under our skin in these chapters. And the pun's intended. He literally gets under our skin. He wants to expose the real problem. He wants to get to the heart of the matter. And so what does God do? He narrows our attention to the infections of the skin, our clothes, our bodies. If there's one thing we can't ignore, we can't ignore our skin. You get something on your face or on your skin, you fixate on it, don't you? You notice it. You can't stand to look in the mirror. Something's on your clothes, you notice it. God says, you want to focus on externals? Then I'm going to point you to externals in order to help you to see inside. God is trying to teach us through our clothes, our bodies, our skin as object lessons, what holiness is like. He's trying to show us how much we need to come clean, to get clean. And he's doing this so that we want it so bad enough that we'll do something about it. We'll embrace his invitation. Like I said, whenever you get something on your face, just your face, for example, it's hard to look in the mirror. You spend hours, how can I cover that up? How can I get rid of that? And, and in a deeper reality, when God exposes to us and holds up the mirror of his word and his spirit, and we see ourselves covered with sores, when we see the places in our lives where we're living in isolation from other people, I don't know about you, but in those moments of clarity that God gives me, 
All I can find and all I sense is I want to get clean. I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to get right with God. Beloved, in our own lives, when you get sick and, you have to, and you're infected you're, and you're contagious and you're quarantined and you have to stay home and worse, well, worse is when you have to go to the hospital. When you're cut off from your family and friends, I know I'm not alone. Everybody hates that. We hate it when we're sick and we're cut off from our family and friends. We hate it when we're isolated. We we're hate, it, hate it even if we can't exist in our life the way that we normally do. And when you're sick like that, you so desperately want to get past it, back into your community, back into your life, that oftentimes you ignore what the doctor tells you you need to do in order to get well, right? You end up spending more time isolated. And finally you just give up because you just want to get out of that bed. You want to get out of that hospital. You want to get out of the house. When you have been quarantined, when you've been sick, and it's been for a long time, we all reached that point where we wouldn't do anything, where no obstacle could stand in our way. If it took 50 wild birds and a whole quart of cedar and all the lists that I described for Leviticus, we get it. Because we want to be clean. And what our Father wants us to see in that physical reality is he wants that same intensity, that same desire in our spiritual lives. God wants us to run to him. God wants us to stop hiding. God wants us to stop denying and stop playing games. And the reality is the physical stuff is easier for us to see and therefore harder for us to hide. It's the stuff on the inside that's harder for us to see and easier for us to hide. And God wants us to, in the same way that we want to get out of that bed, out of that hospital, have that desire to want to run to him. It's not a coincidence that Jesus asks on more than one occasion in the Gospels, when he heals someone, he asks this question, do you want to get well? Jesus wants to make us clean. Jesus wants to make us holy as he is holy. And the reality is, is that fitness and health, spiritually, are both the consequences of obedience, of living in dependence upon God's holiness. When we are clean, we live out of respect for the difference between life and death. And when we respect the difference between life and death in our lives and in our world, holiness results. The Lord is able to transform us as individuals and communities. If you want a, a broader consideration of this truth, then later on today, go to Paul's letter to the Romans to chapter 14. In that section of his letter, the community of churches in Rome are still fixated upon clean versus unclean foods. And Paul finally says in one moment, he elevates the deeper principle that God in originally making those distinctions, pointing back to Leviticus, was trying to point to something greater, was trying to, to point to something deeper. Our fitness for worship, our fitness in worship, our fitness for life. So, beloved, rather than majoring in the minors and arguing about the specific relevancy of these prescriptions in Leviticus in our modern age, because we have refrigeration and other technologies, we can just skip over 11 through 15, because we've got refrigeration now. We've got technology. Rather than casting the worth of these chapters aside through some kind of theological argument, maybe you've heard this one before, well, these were merely ceremonial laws that were abolished when Jesus came to town. Really? Nowhere in Leviticus does this say this was just for ceremony. We instead need to sit and reflect on the relationship that God is drawing out here between uncleanness and sin. Because what God is saying, what is very provocative in how we think and live, what God is saying through Leviticus is that everything is tainted. All creation is marred, disfigured, not right. We are all, the whole world is broken and unclean. It's all unclean. But here's the thing, uncleanness is not sin. Uncleanness is not sin. What the Lord outlines in these chapters is not sin. 
However, why he outlines what he outlines is that in appreciating the distinction between life and death, when we confront the truth of being unclean, when we confront what happens when we ferment in disease, when we troll in decay, when we flirt with death, what we discover is those things are the breeding ground for sin to become actualized in our lives. The connection between impurity, uncleanness, and sin is that both are infectious and damaging. Ultimately, if left unchecked, both are destructive. Beloved, if the things that surround us are unclean and they're unaccounted for, if the things that surround us that are unclean are unacknowledged or unchecked, they will spread, Leviticus says. They will infiltrate. They will overtake and distance us from each other and from God. And in a far greater and deeper sense, that's what sin does. Sin, unaccounted for, unacknowledged, unchecked, spreads, dominates, and separates us from each other and God. Cleanness here in Leviticus is a parable, a gateway, a lens to a broader reality of the bigger problem of sin. To not come clean with God allows for sin to be actualized, to come to life, to stranglehold us in our lives. You know, we tend to have two freedom, two extremes in the Christian camp when we come to this kind of stuff. And maybe you've been exposed to both. On the one hand, in the Christian camp, we have the extreme, which is basically what I like to call categorical avoidance. Where we basically create a long list of things that if you're a Christian, you can't do. You can't drink, you can't smoke, you can't dance, on and on it goes. And I'm here to tell you that that extreme hasn't helped us in the church. That extreme of categorical avoidance of all the list of things that you can't do hasn't helped us. And it hasn't helped us for two reasons. Because first and foremost, when you just create a categorical list, just a blanket list of, well, these things are out, you immediately create what's called the temptation of the forbidden fruit. You don't have to be a kid to experience this. The minute that you just categorically say that something is not permitted, you make that the desire for that even greater. Right? Just categorically to say it's out. The other thing is, is that when we create this, this list of things that we have to categorically avoid, and as it gets longer and longer, isn't it a surprise that all of a sudden the church suddenly creates this bubble that it lives inside? And, and the problem with that is we are called to engage the world around us. We are so OCD about being concerned about being unclean that we're not going to go to the places that need cleansing, that need God's presence. In fact, we get more fired up. We get, we get fired up in the church about all the filth out in the world, all the things that are just nasty and wrong out there. Why are we surprised? What would we expect? That's, that's a world that hasn't encountered the reality of Christ. And they're not going to encounter the reality of Christ if we're living under a bubble pointing outside going, man, I'm not going there. Beloved, part of our freedom, our salvation in Christ is that we are clean in Christ. But that brings us to the other extreme. The other extreme in the church has been to go exactly where I just did, to the extreme, to say, you know what? We've been free in Christ. Paul it writes about, we don't have to worry about food that's been sacrificed to idols. So we don't have to worry about anything. We've been made free in Christ. And so therefore, we don't have to worry about boundaries. And the extreme there is just kind of throwing caution to the wind and saying, well, if I'm covered in Christ, I don't got to worry about anything. That extreme hasn't helped us in the church either. Because as much as we, we love to thump our chest of how Paul says we don't have to worry about the law, we don't have to worry about things that make us unclean, if you go back and read what Paul actually wrote, he says that, but he also says, as he says, we are free in Christ, he says, you know, but it might be a good idea to avoid some things. It might, Paul goes out of his way to say, you know, we should have limits. You ought to be sensitive. You ought to have accountability in the body. Paul doesn't say, hey, it's, we're in Christ. It's a blank check. Do whatever the heck you want. Because none of it will stick to you. Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, 
Be sensitive. Be careful of what you expose yourself to. And here's the rub. Here's why it doesn't work in the church. We like categorical lists because categorical lists just make us, allow us to make blanket statements. What Paul is pointing to is, in the body, for us as a community, we got to get real with each other. Because the things that we need to be careful about what we expose ourselves to are not the same for each one of us. I can have a glass of wine. I hope I don't shock you as your pastor telling you I drink wine, okay? We're Lutherans. Luther did his best theology over beer, so you're in the right place. I don't know. I can have a glass of wine. That's not a problem for me. I don't have to be sensitive to that. But there are people who are around me who that is not a place that they can go. They have to be sensitive to that boundary. You know, I can go to the store and buy something. Is any of my family here? No, okay. I can go to the store and buy something and generally leave with what I went to buy. Other people, they go in and they're going to ring up debt that they can't pay for. Why this gets messy is because in order for us to live into what Paul calls us to live into, our life in Christ, we have to be transparent with each other. We have to be vulnerable with each other. We have to be accountable. We have to let each other know what are the places where we need those boundaries, where we need to set limits that aren't good for us. I'll tell you one for mine. I love movies. I love going to the movies. But I learned a long time ago, and this is for me, I learned a long time ago that even though there's, I, can, I can watch any movie that I want, and even though in a lot of the movies that I've watched, they've never led me to do drugs, cheat on my wife, blow away my enemies, or try to jump a car over a bridge, <laughs> what I've come to realize is there's certain things that I can see and take in that affect me. I'm like, and you're no different, I'm like a steak. And when I marinate in, I absorb. And there are certain things that I absorb more readily than others. And those things that I absorb can sully my soul. Can desensitize me. And I need to be honest with you about that. And you need to be honest with me because that's how we hold each other accountable. Rather than just creating a list that goes on and on and on. And you have Christians sitting at home with their hands together because they're afraid to do anything. The, the beautiful thing about Leviticus, the beautiful thing about Leviticus is that what I've just said, the counter is also true. If Leviticus says that uncleanness is infectious, Leviticus also says, Lord, the Lord wants us to, to see that cleanness is also infectious. But cleanness, unlike uncleanness, is not damaging or destructive. It's pervasive and transformative. Make no mistake, uncleanness is not sin. And being clean, coming clean does not save us. Okay? But to come clean, to be clean, is to be drawn into the presence of the one who can save you. Who purposes to save us all. If we understand and respect the difference between life and death, we enter into the presence of a holy God and we can experience healing from guilt and shame, the hurt within ourselves. The call to separation from the, by the Lord is not a separation from the world or from each other, but an invitation into his presence. It's so easy for us to read these chapters, to get all bent out of shape about all the things that God says we can't do, that we see this as God in these chapters is drawing a line and saying, look, everyone who's with me on this side of the line and everyone who's not on the other side of the line. But I want you to see a different image. God's not drawing a line. God's drawing a circle around his presence so that we can enter into his presence and know the boundaries of where he is in the world. Because to come clean, to be made clean, God knows leads to the deeper hunger and realization of being healed, saved by God. Do you remember the hemorrhaging woman? The hemorrhaging woman with Jesus, do you remember that story? 
woman was, who the, the, the gospel says was unclean. And yet in the midst of a crowd, you remember this? She reached out to simply touch Jesus. And Jesus in that moment in that story affirms that she's not only clean, but he says specifically her faith has made her well. She's healed because she grasped the truth that being clean is not the key. She rightly perceived that coming clean was the means to being saved, and that's why she wanted to be next to Jesus. She wanted to touch Jesus not simply to get clean, not simply to stop hemorrhaging, but to be healed. She wanted her life to be transformed. And this is what God is pointing to through these chapters. These distinctions in Leviticus are not being taught so much so that one can be clean, but so that one can experience salvation. One can live in the presence of God our Father. I want to ask you a question as we near the end here. Questions to let this sink in. Questions to reframe how this speaks into our lives. In light of Leviticus 11 through 15, in light of what we've shared, when was the last time you considered a meal an act of worship? When was the last time you considered a meal an act of worship? When was the last time you thought about what you were eating, the food that was in front of you, the food that you were prepared as an expression of your relationship with God? Leviticus challenges us to look at everything we eat, every meal that we embrace as a part of our worship of God, that what's on our table, what we put in our mouths, what we prepare is a reflection of our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of God, and our understanding of life and death. Think about that the next time you have fast food or junk food. Not about the calories, but how that expresses your understanding of yourself, let alone of God and how the world works. When was the last time you thought about your body in relationship to worship? When was the last time you thought about your body, how you approach it, how you see it, how you use your body as an act of worship? And I'm not just talking about in church, raising your hands or standing up or getting on your knees. When was the last time you thought about the, your body as an extension of your worship? Your engagement with God, your reflection of who you, how you see yourself and how you see God. We, you see, we tend to think of matters of faith as having nothing to do with our bodies. But that's a Western way of thinking. For those of us who know anything about Eastern thought, we know that in the East, they don't distinguish between the physical and the spiritual. Here's a late-breaking newsflash. Neither did the Israelites. And neither should we, because what Leviticus wants to bring home is God cares very much about our physical health and well-being. Think about how our conversations would change in the midst of a world in which we're doing lots of things to our bodies and with our bodies. I rarely hear anyone bring up their faith in those conversations. Other than the abortion issue, I don't hear anyone appealing to God or to their faith when we talk about a variety of things that we can do and want to do with our bodies. And yet here in Leviticus, God is proclaiming that he is invested and interested in our physical health and our well-being. In the New Testament, as I've shared with you before, it's written our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies, what we do with them, express what we believe who we understand ourselves to be as well as who is God is. How does your body express your worship? And how do we live together in community as an act of worship? Not this, not what we're doing right now on a Sunday, but how worshiping as a community, do we, do we live as a community as an act of worship? What I mean is, are we willing to be as vulnerable and as transparent as God tries to create for this community in Leviticus? Are we willing to be open and accountable to each other about the things that we're often hiding? The things that we're often concealing from each other? Beloved, even if we're not willing to, how many of us in Christian community, in the community of other believers, how many of us are seeing, 
in the lives of other people around us. We recognize and see things in other people's lives that are not clean, things that are messed up, things that stink, things that need to be addressed, and yet we will not confront the institutional uncleanness in our community. We will not, as Leviticus points us to, not in a judging way, but in an encouraging, in a transformative, restorative way, lead them to the cleansing that they need in Christ. They need boundaries set for them. They need those boundaries identified. They need to be separated from whatever it is that's harming them. And they're not going to be able to do that on their own. Leviticus points that out. That's our role as priests. Beloved, leprosy is not just a physical condition. It's a spiritual condition. The starting point for us to live this way in community as worship begins with us answering these questions for ourselves and sharing them with another person. What infects you? What sticks? What isolates you? What makes you feel dirty? Are we willing to confront those things? Are we willing to come together and realize that that's part of our worship? Because here's the thing. If we don't come clean with our Father, if we don't come clean with each other, we have nothing to offer the world. If we don't come clean with our Father, if we don't come clean with each other, we're trading in the wages of sin and death rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you see, the nitty-gritty of Leviticus expressed powerful in these chapters is that this God, our Father, is truly interested and seeks to be engaged in all dimensions of our life. Our Father doesn't separate himself from the ugly, messy reflections of our human existence. God desires, he enters in and wants us to have integrated Integrated lives in community versus the fragmented lives that so many of us live. The beautiful thing, the gospel is, is that we don't have to make ourselves clean in order to worship the Lord. You miss Leviticus's point if that's what you think this is all about. We don't have to make ourselves clean in order to worship the Lord. We come clean with our Father in order to get clean by our Father. Worship is life. You're always a priest. I'm always a priest, not just at church, but out in the world. God is present, not just here, but out there in the interactions of our everyday lives. And God wants us to be a people that are distinctly different, people who are clean, cleaned by him and living out of our cleanness. He wants us to see this, the mundane spaces of our lives as sacred spaces, the dinner table, the bedroom, the marketplace, as being places that are just as endowed, just as permeated with God's grace. And he wants us to recognize and to keep those spaces clean because those become reflections of his holiness. Those become manifestations of his gospel in the places in which we bring others into our lives. So beloved, as we move on this morning, let's get clean again. Let's come clean. Let's be clean. Because it's through cleanly, being clean, being made clean by our God, that we are on the road of being holy as our God is holy. Amen?